negotiate a settlement that seems to work for us. And does that represent the reconciling work of Christ? We have a Savior who killed death to reconcile us to himself. The greatest difference that could possibly be imagined. Holy God, creature. Reconciled. We should be the greatest force of reconciliation, of line crossing, barrier crossing, reuniting, unity filled people on the planet. We should be a force that brings people together. And yet we have an enemy. And we let him divide us from each other. Let's be people who represent the reconciling work of Jesus when it's hard. Because that's exactly what Jesus did in reconciling us to himself. So we're continuing on in our series in 2 Corinthians. Christ is the supreme and worthy treasure, even if it means slander and suffering. Christ is the supreme and worthy treasure, even if the people in your tribe make fun of you for crossing lines. Christ is the supreme and worthy treasure, even if to get you back in line with your group and your dividing line, they start attacking you, making fun of you, oppressing you. He's still more worthy to cross the lines for. And even if it means suffering. And that's been the theme of Second Corinthians so far. We just finished a little small unit within the book um, on this offering that was being taken up for the saints in Judea. And so the Jewish church in Judea was famine stricken, which means poverty and starvation, no social services. And so the worldwide body of Christ was mobilized to go take care of them, to cross the line, to make sure the need was met. And so for two chapters, Paul has laid out, why do we give? Because we have a generous God. Why do we give? He gave us a generous gospel that included the death of his son. Why do we give? Because a generous God with a generous gospel creates generous people. And by the way, there's some examples of that. The Macedonians, dead broke, gave beyond their means because they belonged to Jesus. Jesus himself, infinitely and eternally wealthy, becoming poor so that you could be rich in the kingdom of God. The gospel creates generous people. Now he's transitioning back to a defense of his ministry. And he's going to up the pressure on the false apostles. He's going to up the pressure on those who have broken into the church to steal the church away from him. And he's going to up the pressure on that while answering a few charges they've leveled against him. So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. And I want you to notice, as we always fight for reconciliation with each other and God, the warfare imagery of this passage you can't meet. Reconciliation is war, which means reconciliation is going to hurt. It's going to have a cost associated to it. Look at it as we read it in the text. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold when, to you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking, of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey or to submit to Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Let's pray. Father, 
Grant us to see the enemy for who he is. And it's not each other. Grant us to see the enemy for who he is. And to know his lies are lies. And that you are true. And you are right. Grant us to see the enemy for who he is as he accuses us. Let us declare over our lives there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who could bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Let us declare truth, Father, in the face of accusation. And God, as temptation batters against our life, let us see Jesus as more precious. Let us see Jesus as life that we might have power to stand. And Lord, I pray that you would tear down walls today. The the walls we've placed in our own hearts that keep you from areas of our life. That you would tear down walls in our homes that keep us from each other. That you would tear down walls in the church, Father, that keep us from loving each other as Christ has loved us and forgiving each other as Christ has forgiven us. Tear down walls in in family structures and extended families. Tear down walls in workplaces. Tear down walls, Father, by the reconciling work of our Savior Jesus Christ. Set people free. Restore people to each other, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So always fight for reconciliation to each other and to God. Always fight for reconciliation to each other and to God. Let's look at the first uh, part of that. Pursue reconciliation with the meekness and boldness of Christ. Pursue reconciliation with the meekness and the boldness of Christ. I was listening to a pastor recently and, you know, he's just describing, you know, there's those times in marriage where you fight. Like, not me, but you, right? Where you fight in your marriage and you're having these arguments and the temperature starts to rise. You've been there, right? You're having an argument and it gets a little more heated. And you're having an argument and it gets a little more heated. And he's like, sometimes what we do, by God's grace, is one of us will, will be in this moment. And one of us will just step back and be like, honey, we're on the same team. And everything changes. All right? The issue isn't fixed. The issue is still there. The heat's taken out of it. And now what he said was as a couple, instead of fighting with each other over the issue, we're able to fight against the issue that's wrecking our marriage. And so that's that was just an analogy that I thought was so perfect because our posture in our fights and our conflicts and our divisions should not be against each other. It should be against the issues that war in our lives, against the issues that divide us from each other. Now, I'm going to speak for myself, but I think I'm probably speaking about you too. We really stink at handling conflict, don't we? Like, we're terrible at it. We blow it because when we get into the heat of the moment of conflict, my goal is to win. Or my goal is to be proven right. My goal is for the other person to agree. Man, that stinks as a way to handle conflict. Because guess what? The other person thinks they're right too. How do we come to a settlement? Right? And so we really stink at conflict because as the heat of the moment arises, my words get harsher and less loving. We really stink at conflict. Because we know a gentle answer turns away wrath, but man, if I yell louder, she'll know I'm right. Isn't that who wins the argument, right? Whoever can yell the loudest? Come on, y'all are acting like this isn't you. I'm just confessing on myself, I guess. And so we stink. We make it a win-lose. We make it personal about the other person. 
We stink at conflict. But here's the thing. Here's what we're aiming for. Our goal is not to win arguments. Our goal is not to be right. Our goal is to be reconciled. And so are you fighting for reconciliation in the heated moments of life? Are you fighting to say, here's what Jesus looks like as he brings people together? Are you fighting to say, we're on the same team and we're going to deal with this together? We're going to handle conflict together because there is no such thing as a conflict-free life. You're not going to have a roommate situation without conflict. You're not going to be a part of a church very long without conflict. You're not going to be part of a marriage without conflict. You're not going to have kids uh, for very long without conflict. You're not going to go to work every day with the same people and there not be conflict. So the question becomes, can we be better at handling our conflict in biblical, healthy ways? Can we be better at handling our conflict in a way that says, here's what Jesus is like. Can we be better at handling conflict to say that my ultimate goal in every conflict is reconciliation? To leave the widest path possible for our relationship to have unity again. To leave the widest path possible after this argument for us to come back to each other with intimacy. Because that's the way conflict is meant to be handled. Healthy conflict has the goal of reconciliation, not winning. And then it allows us to have a gentle answer that turns away wrath. Then it allows us, instead of making it personal, make it issue-centered. Then it has the ability to say... I'm not interested in winning the argument. I'm interested in winning your heart back. And that changes the words we use. And it changes the way we approach things. And it changes the the outcome of the argument. Because what we tend to do in conflict is we don't just now have an issue separating us. We like to blow up the bridge that could bring us back together. And so it's not just the issue anymore. Now it's I have to, the the amount of work it would take for us to span the distance between us has gotten worse because we've just blown it up. And so we want to be people that leave the bridges back intact by the way we handle our problems. Let's look at it in the text as as Paul continues to walk this out within the Corinthian church. So he says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And so what Paul is doing is in a subtle but not really subtle kind of way saying, I'm Paul. I have authority. I'm the apostle. And so when he opens up this section this way, he's making it very clear. This is me talking. I'm directly involved in what's going on. I'm the apostle, right? So he's asserting authority. I, Paul, myself. But how does Paul wield that authority? How does Paul address the issues that are going on? How does Paul handle conflict? I have authority, church. So I beg you, I entreat you. Instead of laying it down, he's like, I entreat you. That is a, it's a personal plea to the church. Like, please hear me. Please respond to this. And so I have the authority to command, but I choose to use that authority in a way that allows the best chance for us to be reconciled. I'm entreating you. I I am making a personal appeal to your souls to hear me and, and, and to follow what I'm saying. And then look how Paul wields that authority. The meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I can unleash my power on you, church, and I'm right and you're wrong, by the way. And it's in the, like in the biblical sense, they're wrong. He's right. It's not just like in your marriage or your roommate situations where you think you're right and you think they're wrong. 
Like he's biblically right. He's biblically on God's side. And he could unleash his authority on the church. But instead, he is meek because he wants to display Jesus. You know, meekness is power under control, power restrained. I have authority and I beg you. I have authority and I beg you. And so I restrain, I control that authority instead of exerting it and unleashing it on the church. Instead of blowing things up and demanding everything, I'm putting my authority back under restraints, under control. I'm putting the way I handle these issues restrained, and then I'm also handling it with the gentleness of Christ. And so if you were to think about your words as arrows fired at other people, because some of them are, right? And if you think about your words as arrows fired at other people, gentleness would be to take the tip and blunt it. So that I still use words, but I'm not using words to cut and to stab and to pierce. I'm using my words to actually produce a change. And so Paul has authority to wage war. Paul has authority to clear the decks. But instead of doing that, what Paul does is he personally makes an appeal for the church to hear. And he personally displays Jesus in the way he's handling conflict because that's the goal. And he's like, I'm going to restrain my rightful authority for your good. And I'm going to blunt the tip of my words so that they're not there to cut and to pierce, but to restore and to heal. You see that? And so what if we handled our conflict in a way that we could display Jesus? What if we handled our conflict in a way that I'm going to restrain my rightness and my being right and my, my authority? I'm going to restrain that because what I want ultimately is restoration. I don't want to be right necessarily. I don't want to win the argument first and foremost. I want to win you. And so what if I wielded my conflict and handled my issues in a way that just said, here's the way back. And instead of using words that win, I'm going to use words that win you. And so Paul's like, I got authority. I'm right. But I'm going to handle that in a way that shows off Jesus, that shows off his meekness, that shows off his gentleness. And we do this in marriage all the time, don't we? I just use that because it's the closest relationship. We get a lot of practice at conflict, right? So we do it in marriage all the time. I'm right. They shouldn't be so lazy. I'm right. They should help out around the house. I'm right. They should turn off the TV and engage. I'm right. There should be more communication. I'm right. They're wrong. And it may be true. They are. Or it may just be your perception. It, 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 both can be true. And since I'm right, I don't have to restrain how I handle being right. I don't have to restrain my words and making sure they understand I'm right and they're wrong. I don't have to hold back. So my goal and the result is winning. Or I'm right. They're wrong. How do I bring them back to Jesus? How do I show off Jesus? How do I bring us back together? That's the goal. That's the goal. What do you win? When you win an argument that leaves you separated. What do you win when you're proven right, but you've shambled up your marriage? What do you win when you've blown up relationships with your friends? What do you win when you've blown up a relationship with your kids? What do you win when you've blown up a relationship at church? What do you win when you divide a church? Nothing, but at least you won. What do you win when you've won a brother back? A sister back? 
What do you win when your marriage flourishes and your roommate environment is life-giving as opposed to life-taking? What do you win when the church's relationships are whole and healthy? You win the greater display of Jesus. All right, and so... Then he goes in and, and he kind of, there's this charge. We'll get it more in, in verse 10, but there's this charge laid against us. Well, church, you're so humble when face to face. And by the way, that's not a be low. And, right? This wasn't a church world. This was the ancient world. And in the ancient the world, we use because in the world sense of the way we like to follow people with power, don't we? I like to follow people with status. I like to follow people with honor, even if they're harsh to me, even if they're ugly to me, if they're powerful and if they have status and if they're famous, man, I got to go after them. And that worldly mentality of following power and fame and status has seeped into the church. And so they're attacking Paul for his humility. They're attacking him for being lowly. And look at what they're saying about him. Paul, you're humble. You're a coward. When you show up face to face, you're weak, but all humble. Sudden, when you get into another city and you get behind the safety of a desk, all of a sudden you're bold and you can handle yourself. And so they were able to make this charge against Paul because he did have, in chapter 2, this painful visit. And Paul went there to straighten out some issues in the church. And basically they, and what I would call a straight back, they shamed Paul. And instead of fighting, Paul off and treated, call a strategic retreat because he didn't want Second Corinthians being one of them. But it gave an, an opportunity for his opponents to say, look, see how he runs away when it gets hard? You see how he runs away when, when people disagree with him? Oh, but he can write a letter. So that's the charge that leads us to verse 2. Okay, guys, I beg you. Now, this is an even more deeply personal appeal. So I entreat you personal. I beg you. I plead with you. Please hear my heart and please answer. Please respond to what I'm saying. I beg you that when I am present, I won't have to be bold like this. So Paul's basically saying, you know, like, okay, your kids have come out for water, and then they've come out for juice. It's bedtime, right? And then they've come out for, they've got to go to the bathroom, and then they've come out because they're scared, and they come out because they need your blanket. And you get to the point where you're like, don't make me come back there. Everybody know what that means? All right. So Paul is saying, don't make me come back there. Right? And so Paul's like, I beg you, when I show up, I want us to be in spiritual blessing. But if I have to, I'm going to show you what Holy Spirit boldness looks like. Not the fake boldness of these fake apostles. I'm going to show you what the boldness of the Holy Spirit commissioning a man to a task. I'm going to show you what the boldness of one rightfully the founding apostle of this church. I'm going to show you what Holy Spirit boldness looks like. I'm going to show you what the power of the Spirit looks like, but please don't make me. I can bring shock and awe, but I don't want to. And that's what Paul is saying in this verse. Please don't make me come that way. And so there are going to be some people that find out if I'm bold or not. Right? The people that accuse him of walking according to the flesh. There are going to be some people who learn what spirit boldness looks like and spirit power looks like. They're about to find out. But he does not want that to be the church at large. He's going to deal with some people and he's like, you want to see what face-to-face looks like? Here we go. But he doesn't want that to be the main church. And he doesn't think it's going to be the main church. Right? But there's those who accuse him of walking according to the flesh. Paul, you're a paper apostle. You can't stand up when it's hard. Or maybe walking according to the flesh means 
You use the world's methods. You use the world motives. You have fleshly motives, right? You're inconsistent. You don't have integrity. You walk according to the flesh. And that's the accusation that's made against him. And so here's the thing as we wrap up this point. You can be a thousand percent right in an argument with your spouse. You can be a thousand percent right in an argument with your roommate. You can be a thousand percent right in an argument with your teacher or with your parents. You can be a thousand percent right and a thousand percent wrong at the same time. You can handle it in the exact wrong way. And so whether you're to be right, get it off your chest and feel better. Your goal has to be, here's what Jesus looks like as he brings people back together. That's the goal of conflict. And it will take meekness. It will take all the spirit power possible to restrain those natural urges and right feeling, or you know, right, your rightness, restrain that. If that's what it takes to bring back together, it will take humility because pride's going to blow things up. And it will take forgiveness. And isn't that exactly what the cross looks like? And boldness, directness. Second, pursue reconciliation by godly warfare against destructive ideologies and self-promotion. Pursue reconciliation by godly warfare against destructive ideologies and self-promotion. I was reading this in a book and so I'm just... Bombs are dropping. The landscape is ravaged. And there are massive casualties. But we don't see it. How many of us have parents or dear, dear friends or ourselves have experienced friends or our own kids or kids we've seen grow up in this church walk away from the faith and they hadn't come back yet? See, there's casualties everywhere. If you have been in church any length of time at all, you have experienced a church that split everywhere. We can look around and we can see our relationships with our kids or, or the relationships of parents and kids around us. And there's casualties everywhere. We can see people that we don't talk but we don't see it. Man, what if God was just gracious enough to make our physical landscape look like the spiritual landscape around us? What if he let us see the war? There'd be bullet holes all in these walls. There'd be bombs that ravaged through it. We'd have Sunday school classes that just completely empty, demolished with no roof. And our, and our houses, how many of our houses would just be in shambles? Almost brick for brick falling on the ground. Fortified cities within your heart, strongholds. The enemy has fortified cities within the church and he has fortified cities in our homes and he has fortified cities within our culture and all of them press on us, believe this. All of them press on a picture to this way. It's your right. They should have elevated you. They should have picked you. Press, press, press. And the enemy has these places that he can just keep going back to in our lives and our families and our church and in our culture that he can keep going back to. And that's what a stronghold is, is the trade route that leads from us to God in every area of life. He sets up these fortified cities to keep us from getting through, to keep us from encountering God, from keep us from fully knowing God or to keep people from knowing him at all. And strongholds and the Holy Spirit is laying, laying siege in your heart to recapture it. And the same thing in your home and the same thing in the church. The Holy Spirit is warring for unity. 
He's warring not against each other. He's warring. Here's the accusation. Paul, you look according to the flesh. And Paul's like, yeah, I walk according to the flesh. They mean something else by it, though. So they're like, Paul, you're weak. You lack integrity. You're inconsistent. You're a paper apostle. And Paul's like, yeah, I walk guilty. That has weakness, that gets sick, that is prone to temptation. I walk according to the flesh. You're right. He just redefines the word for him. But do not make a mistake about my life if you see it. I do not wage war. This is in my battle. Power have nothing to do with the limitations of my frail flesh. They have everything to do with the sovereign, divine, like world-creating power of God. That's the way I wage war. And the whole passage then becomes about warfare. We wage our warfare this way. The weapons of our warfare aren't folds. We take captives. We punish rebels. And it's all warfare imagery from here on out. But the war isn't against each other. The war isn't against the enemy that set up a wall to keep you from encountering God, to keep you from living a life flourishing in God, to keep people from getting to the knowledge of God. And so the weapons of our warfare, they are not weapons of fleshly weapons. They're not the guilt that we like to use because it works on the flesh. It's not the manipulation to get people to do what I want, how I, how I want them to do it. It's not by sheer power and money. That's not the way I wage warfare. It's not by my charisma and natural skill set and abilities. That's not the way I war. I war by the divine power of God. My weapons aren't settings. My weapons are mighty in God and they destroy the strongholds that set up against God. And so what are these divinely powerful weapons? He doesn't define it, but I... What are divinely powerful weapons of the Spirit in your life? The gospel and the presence of the Spirit. The gospel and the presence of the Spirit. So how do I fight against the ideologies that set up against against the things that divide us from each other? How do I fight the rebel outposts of my heart? With the gospel. That there is a God who became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. That there in him. The one who says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? For it is God who justifies. Like you can't come to the judge and make a charge when the judge has already declared the sentence. And if he's given us condemnation, then we not sure in Christ give us everything. That's how I fight my warful. And the power of the Spirit has been deposited in me, sealed me, lives within me. And so I have divine power to destroy the strongholds that are against me. I have power because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you war with the gospel or do you war with the flesh? Do you rant on Facebook about the beauty of Jesus or do you rant on Facebook rant about what your husband or wife does and doesn't do? Do you rant on Facebook about your politics or about the beauty of Jesus? Because the weapons of our warfare are the weapons of the beauty of Jesus Christ who transform. The transforming power of Jesus will fix everything. Or, like winning an argument, being right this time, that's going to, that's every, no. The transforming power accumulates, no. If I have the transforming message of Jesus, I have the divine power to destroy strongholds. And then in the rest of the passage, he gives us the objective of this, destroy strongholds. How to go about destroying strongholds. Take every thought captive. Make it bow before Jesus Christ. And then be...
What are strongholds? Look at the text. Every argument, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. That's the stronghold. Anyone, anything, any knowing God, of knowing God fully. That's the stronghold. And so he uses the word arguments, philosophies, the ideas of our society, the true. These are the arguments that set up strongholds against people knowing God. And so what are some of them? Let's start with easy ones first, right? Here's one of the ideologies that is not in a corner somewhere, but is down to what you feel and decide it should be, not what is biologically given to you by God. It's not just out in the culture. There is mainline churches across America who would, God saying, let us create man in our image according to our likeness. And so he created them male and female. He created them to display his glory in the earth, to, to show what he is like. He made both male and female. But you're like, I, you know, I, I get you. I agree with that. That's not a big one for me. What about this? Homosexuality is a sin. Would be, or I'm sorry, Holy Spirit, it's not a sin. It is a genetic wiring that I am born with and, and, and have to embrace. And, and why does it matter if it makes you anyways? And some of you, I mean, that's probably not the widespread portion of us, but some of you get that. Like, I understand that reasoning. What was the primary initial be fretful? multiply fill the earth with my image fill the earth with my glory to every corner subdue it and bring it under your dominion and so the first blessing of god who creates the male and female is to commission them to fill the earth with his image because god says it does but those are easy you know right i'm i I get it those are easy so what if we zoomed in the more stuff you have the more you're winning at life you need newer. You need bigger. And if that name happens to change next season, you need to have a new right name on it. And it is an ideology that wars against knowing God. It's a fault ideology. Or, go ahead, just take one more look. It's not hurting. Or image on your computer screen, nobody's being hurt by it. And these are strongholds that get set up out there and in here that block off. Better yet, he must tear them down with the divinely powerful weapons of the spirit and of the gospel to set us free. And lofty things that exalt themselves. That's this area is called God hands off. You can have everything else. So how do we fight this? They're so strong and they're so subtle and we get them through TV ads and we get them through the media and we get them through our common. Take every thought captive. The word captive means put in a cage or put in chains. And so everybody been to the zoo before? Seen them on TV? We take massively. And that's what this word I think is talking about. Take every thought captive, put your thoughts in a cage so that you're safe from their destructive influences and you can observe to see if they line up with God or not. Take every thought captive, stick your thought into submission to obey Christ. And so I put my thought to the cage and I observe them what's true and what's not true. And then I tame them by saying, here's what is true. Right. And so we have this enemy and he's like, you're no good. We have this enemy. You don't measure up. We have this enemy. 
taste. It's better. We have this enemy who lies and defines who we are. And he lies and he says, God has left you. And he lies and says um, that what you see isn't good enough. And he, one more look. It doesn't hurt anybody. And then when you take that look, he's like, see, you stink. You blew it again. And you have an enemy that lies to you. And you have an enemy that accuses you. You take your divides you from the, you take the lies, you take the accusations, you take the temptations, you put them in a cage. And then you bring the truth of Christ to bear. Oh, he'll never leave me or forsake me. My God is powerful. He is greater than my circumstances. He's greater than the no way out that I'm facing right now. Righteousness is righteousness on me. And you can't bring a charge against me, Satan, not because I don't deserve it, but because he has declared it innocent. Take every thought captive and then tame that thought with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's who Jesus is. Lie. Here's who Jesus has declared me to be. It's a lie. Those are lies. Here's who Jesus has, uh, has defined me as. Here's my identity. All that is lies. Here's who Jesus is. It's better than that fake pleasure that you're offering me. To take the lies, the accusations, the temptations of the stronghold and false ideas and false theologies within you and without of you and say, get in a cage and let me see what we're dealing with. Here's the truth. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what Jesus has done. And here's what Jesus thought. And then the last part. Be changed. When you have been brought into obedience, we will punish the rebels, it says. When your obedience is complete. And so once you have caught it, thought, now redeemed... A redeemed thought and mind, and you unleash it for transformation. You take the cage off because it's now redeemed, and it changes. You actually live it out. You obey it. That's your battle plan. Tame them with the truth of the gospel, and then unleash them as a transformed way of living that looks like submission to Jesus, that looks like the gospel. This is God's way of tearing down strongholds, the fortified cities in our souls, This is the way of demolishing those so that we can gain, look at this, the knowledge of God. They lift themselves against to bar us from the knowledge, the experience, the fully knowing of God. And so we're demolishing strongholds, not, and we want others to know God. And we want the pathway to be straight and clear to get there. And that's why we care about some of the ideologies of our culture. That's why we care about the false things we raise up in church. So we care about the things that have entrenched in our family and knowing God in our lives. Put it in a cage, tame it, and be transformed to go live differently. Let's look at a few practical things as we close out. First, handle when you have to deal with issues in relationships. Have you removed the log out of your own eye? Do you restrain all that rightful power and bring it under control? Are you gracious, right? Handle conflict in a way that displays Christ. Second, examine your thought life. You may know or you may not know what some of your strongholds are. Spend a week with a journal. I I am not a good journaler. That's not my thing. I can't even read my own writing most of the time. But it might help you to say, like, what happened what was going on? Why was I so upset? Why did I react the way I did? What, what happened here? What was I wanting? What was I desiring? What was I pursuing? What was I hoping? Like, let me, let me cage up some of these thoughts of the past. 
That needs to be tamed and brought under Jesus. I need to declare what is true about these lies that I've put in a cage, an aquarium now, so I can stare at them and fix them and tame them. Saying, to cat the example your thought of your mind that talks in the quiet moments. What is it saying and is it true? Because if it's not true, it is going to fuel a life absent the truth or away from the truth. And then lastly, preach the gospel to yourself. When you see those temptations offer you things that, that it cannot deliver, here's what's true. Here is Jesus. Here's what Jesus has accomplished. And you declare that to yourself. And you declare it as often a constant daily reminder somewhere. You may want to just stop and verbally out loud declare the truth of God over the temptation, declare the truth of God over the lie out loud where it can hear it. Encourage you give Sunday school a try in August and September. I know that's not in, in the message. This is a free one. In August and September, we just want to be intentional about welcoming people into kind of treasuring Christ environments, about welcoming people and service. We can we feel encouraged to just give it a try. On the back of your bulletin, there's some of our classes. We've got one launching next week for guests, or if you if you're a guest, or if you've just attended a long time, I'm like, I've never made that step. Well, there's some places to start. Feel free to try one because we believe that's a way that you will meaningfully connect into the body that you can't if we just show up here. Fight for reconciliation even when it's hard and even when it costs you something. Fight against the thoughts of your heart that define you differently than Jesus does. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name we bow as those who have been redeemed. We bow as those who do not have condemnation as the words spoken over their lives anymore. As those who the accusations of the enemy that are so true, and he's killed those accusations. Those who have believed the destructive things of the culture that define them by, or define us by our political views, God. We so need to be set free to be defined by the beauty and the glory of Jesus with all his creative diversity and the beauty and glory of Jesus that reconciles us to each other. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a gospel. There is good news that God has sent his son into the world who died for your sins and rose again. There's the good news that if you will turn from your sin... And you will put your faith in Jesus, the weight of your life and eternity on Jesus. He will forgive you. He will save you. He will adopt you. And that all that call on the name of the Lord, he'll save. Maybe you need to do that today because the Spirit is convicting you and working in your life. Come, we'll pray together. Or You see the carnage in relationships. You know, man, marriage isn't what it should be. Or I've got relational conflict with people in church. Or, man, my house kind of is a... God, I, that's, I want Jesus to reconcile. Come ask for it. Ask for it right where you are. Or maybe it's your own life you see the strongholds. Maybe it's your own life you see the lies you've believed. You see the accusations that have been leveled that you've accepted as your own. And you want to come and just ask God to declare the gospel over you again and to remind you of what is true. You can do that here. You can do that where you are. We're going to stand and sing and invite you to respond how God is leading.